Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ethnographic Marginalia, a special series on the New Books Network. I'm Sneha Navarapu. And I'm Alex Diamond. And we are the hosts of this special series. Ethnographic Marginalia brings together a set of conversations around ethnographic practice. In each episode, we will converse with an ethnographer about their research design, process, and fieldwork experiences. This special series centers the dilemmas tribulations, mistakes, and pleasures that go into doing ethnographic research. We hope to use the conversations that transpire on this podcast as an opportunity to build community amongst ethnographers in various disciplines. Towards this end, we also have a website where we publish field notes, ethnographic essays, photo essays, and methodological reflections. Please visit our website, Ethnographic Marginalia, at www.ethnomarginalia.com to know more about how you can publish with us. We really look forward to hearing from you. Before we proceed with this episode, we'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Ethnography Incubator at the University of Chicago and the Lozano Long Institute for Latin American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. And on that note, let's begin. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Ethnographic Marginalia. Uh, We are very excited to bring a new episode to you today. And in this episode, we have the absolute pleasure of being in conversation with Dr. Marta Marika Urbanik, who is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Alberta. Marta is an urban ethnographer specializing in gangs and neighborhood redevelopment in the Canadian context. Her research interests include issues pertaining to gangs and gang violence in in neighborhoods and in prison, the effects of neighborhood redevelopment on criminal processes, neighborhood beefs and violence, the street code on social media, police minority relations, and research methods. Marta's work has been published in the British Journal of Criminology, Qualitative Sociology, the Journal of Contemporary Ethnography, the Encyclopedia of Crime and Punishment, and in a, in a volume titled Using Ethnography in Criminology. Welcome to the podcast, Marta. It's such a pleasure to have you here with us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Hi, Marta. Um, So first of all, we wanted to start just by asking you to to explain how you became a sociologist and an ethnographer, Um, (laughs) and maybe more specifically, how you got into studying gangs. Sure. Yeah, that's that's a good question to start with. So my path was a bit unorthodox, I think, compared to most people. Uh, You might be surprised to learn, for example, that I didn't really know what ethnography was until I actually started my master's program, which is really interesting. And I had very little understanding of sociology beforehand as well. And so what happened was when I started my master's, I was at the University of Toronto. I took a class with Dr. Sandra Busarius, who's a world-renowned ethnographer now, and she had us reading these ethnographic books. And it was my first exposure to ethnography and that type of research and deep immersion. And I just could not put them down. So I read them. I think I read Code of the Streets, for example, within a day and a half. And I started (laughs) doing, it was quite nerdy, but I just, I couldn't stop absorbing the content and, and the process of this research methodology. And so I started becoming really interested in that. But again, my plan was literally just to get my master's and to kind of head out, right? It was a course-based master's, no research, nothing. That was my ultimate goal. However, while I was doing that, um, Sandra Busaria saw my love for the content and had an ongoing research project in Canada's oldest and one of its largest social housing projects. And given that she saw my interest in this, as well as some different aspects of my identity. She thought that I might be a good research assistant on this project to conduct interviews with neighborhood residents about how they were experiencing the ongoing revitalization, which was the first one in Canada, right? So it was quite a big deal. 
And so she asked me to come along onto this project and to help her with some interviews. And I immediately said yes. <laughs> Admittedly, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing at all, right? Sandra tried to train me as best as she could, but I just decided that the best way to try to recruit people would be to walk around the neighborhood and, and try to convince them to participate in the study, tell them a little bit about who I was and what I was doing and see if they would talk to me. Mm-hmm. I was quite warned by many other Torontonians, I lived in Toronto at the time, that this neighborhood would be closed off to outsiders, that it would be dangerous, all of these things that no one would talk to me. Um, but to my surprise, everyone was quite welcoming and opening. And mm-hmm. almost everyone I approached, you know, that first week agreed to be interviewed. And so I started doing interviews in this neighborhood, Regent Park, through that. And mm-hmm. I thought that it was really great experience. I was learning a lot. I kind of continued on with that. But then quite soon after arriving in the neighborhood, I was essentially, quote unquote, checked by a couple of major neighborhood players. And so what that means is in Toronto, if you're familiar with some of the neighborhoods, depending on where you walk through, people will come up to you and kind of demand to know your identity and demand you justify your presence in their community, right? It's quite mm-hmm. close-knit in some communities. So they literally com- comprised of some of these major criminal players approaching me immediately and being like, you know, who are you and where are you from kind mm-hmm. of thing? Why are you here? And so that was my original encounter with some of these major neighborhood players um, and some of the local gang members in that community was these brief moments of them protecting, you know, the area, making sure specifically as a, as a young white woman, you know, walking around with a recorder, who mm-hmm. I could possibly and what I was doing. And so over time, they started talking to me more and more and they started spending more time with me in between my neighborhoods, right? They were really curious, I think, about kind of who I was and what I was doing there generally. So in between neighborhoods or in between interviews, sorry, when they saw me hanging around, they were very much just chatting me up a little bit here and there and here and there. And again, the goal at this point, right, I was just a research assistant doing my master's, was to just help my professor at the time with conducting interviews for her study. However, as I kind of gained familiarity with this process and interest, uh, Sandra Bucerius suggested that I pursue a PhD. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And coming from my background and my life history, I thought this was absolutely hilarious. Um, (laughs) This was definitely (laughs) not something I had ever anticipated, planned, or even desired at that time. I didn't know really what a PhD was, anything like that. And I was quite naive, (laughs) admittedly, to the process. Um, so in addition to that curveball, though, she was moving to the University of Alberta. So she says, oh, you also have to like pick up your life and move everything four hours mm-hmm. away across the country to do this. And so I said, cool, we'll, we'll start that. And so that's how st- I started kind of becoming more of a scholar. This is, though, where the kind of gang element comes in more. Given my existing rapport and my ability to build trust with some of Regent Park's kind of top gang members and, you know, neighborhood individuals, she proposed that I conduct my PhD research with them, given my level of access. So that's kind of how I became to move more into kind of studying gangs is because the access kind of came before the project. And their their willingness and actually often their eagerness to have me kind of document their lives and learn about them is really what kind of catapulted me into this research area. No, I mean, this is all really, really interesting. And as you were speaking, I guess I was um, curious to to hear you say a little more about maybe your, uh, you know, your gender, how that shaped uh, doing this kind of fieldwork that is often considered to be like, you know, fairly dangerous, as as I'm sure you've heard a lot of people tell you um, (laughs) over the past many years. Yeah. Yeah, I know for sure. That's a that's also something really important to consider. So there's very few um, instances of female ethnographers conducting ethnographic work with predominantly male groups, right? Mm-hmm. Or at least conducting it alone. Oftentimes, sometimes they'll go in with a male research partner. Right. Um, however, I had the benefit in that my supervisor had done this, right, mm-hmm. um, with. Um, 
drug-involved men in Germany. And so she was able to advise in parts of that role. But a lot of it, as you're both aware, right, just relates to individual kind of personalities, dynamics, settings. So gender, in my case, benefited me because it kept me largely safer in the neighborhood because no one could assume that I was perhaps involved in some of the street beefs. Women often aren't. Mm -hmm. And so I know that, you know, one of the issues in these neighborhoods was, of course, the potential of a drive-by shooting. That was Mm -hmm. kind of the biggest risk or, you know, someone walking up with a gun and shooting indiscriminately at the group that I was with. Being a woman, I was less likely to be targeted because the assumption would probably be that I was maybe a girlfriend or, you know, a partner of one of my participants Mm -hmm. And so less involved, perhaps a social worker, right? Mm -hmm. People couldn't really necessarily assume that I was heavily involved in life. So that protected me from the violence from kind of outside the group, which Mm -hmm. was critical. And of course, my race played into that largely, right? As a white woman, it was quite different than if I was a black woman, for example, Mm -hmm. or an indigenous woman. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. Between my participants, I think it actually really enabled the rapport building process and the fact that they were able to speak, I believe, more honestly with me and openly with me about their struggles, precisely because of these gender differences. I believe they were able and willing to share more vulnerable parts of themselves, including, you know, my most recent piece, uh, how they navigate homicide of loved ones, right? The vulnerability, some of the pressures they feel to stunt on social media to do all of these things. I'm not so sure they would have perhaps done that with a male ethnographer um, or even an an ethnographer of a different kind of social position and standing. But so that benefited me in that way. I've written a little bit about that with uh, Dr. Sandra Busarius about how gender impacts field relations and the challenges and benefits of navigating that in the field. Um, But it's definitely an important layer that ethnographers need to consider. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and how did they understand your interest in studying them? I mean, I I can imagine. I, I noticed when when you talked about people from the outside interpreting your role with the group, they thought you might have been a girlfriend or something. But mm-hmm. but no one would have assumed ethnographer. So this is kind no. of like a, a weird <laughs> and unexpected thing, right? Yes, right. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you know, I had gone through how many years of university not knowing what an ethnographer was. So, yeah, I assume many people are also unfamiliar with that. So at first they were when I first entered with the interviews about the revitalization, they thought that this was really interesting because they believed they were left out of these conversations. Right. Mm -hmm. Specifically, they said, yes, this neighborhood discussions happened, but they were targeted to some of the more privileged members in the community. No one has asked us what we think about this revitalization and how it's affecting our lives, even though it's most dangerous for us, right? It has the greatest ramifications for those who are least uh, advantaged in that community. So at Mm -hmm. first, they were quite happy that someone was willing to actually listen to their opinions and their experiences in that way. The one thing that was interesting was because I started as an RA for a separate project, they kept trying to attune me to other things, right? Very much like, yeah, okay, here's information on how the revitalization is affecting our lives. Cool. But you should also really focus on this, right? They kept bringing up the violence and violence and Mm -hmm. social media and all of these things. And they, they didn't really understand why I wasn't necessarily broadening you know, some of my questions. And so when it came to switching and making this my own field research project, I think that's when it opened things up of, you know, okay, she really wants to learn about almost the totality of our lives, right? Of all of our experiences. So that case, it was interesting. So they understood that it was very much from like a nerdy kind of perspective, right? Learning as much as I could and being open The gender thing, just to go back to your question, did become a bit of an issue with some of their partners um, Mm -hmm. and some of the parents of their children, specifically with women, right? That was a bit um, difficult to navigate the first couple of years because it just looked bizarre, right? What is this 
woman doing with a group of all men all day long, every single day on the block, um, sometimes late into the night. It just seemed odd. Uh, but over the years, thankfully, I think their partners um, and the other women in the neighborhood just saw me as, you know, the nerd that I was like, oh, right. more, more <laughs> interviews kind of thing. Um, and then I also developed like just this nickname as interview girl the first few years. <laughs> so I would just walk through the neighborhood and people would just yell, interview girl, hey, because <laughs> they didn't remember my name. So that was cool. But yeah, yeah, that's, a, yeah. <laughs> that, that's um that's uniquely endearing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, well, just you know, speaking more directly about this, uh, the work that you have out in the world. So, in a in a recent qualitative sociology article titled "Gangster Life: Fusing Urban Ethnography with Ethnography in Gang Studies," which you co-authored with Robert Rocks, you write that you inadvertently found yourself infusing um, traditional neighborhood ethnography with digital research. So could you explain how this came about? And you've talked about this a little bit just now, but what made you realize that you needed to be doing digital ethnography as part of your more traditional ethnographic practice? And how did your use of digital ethnography change over time? Yeah, so perhaps unsurprisingly, just like my other (laughs) endeavors and my entry into the research world, um, me dabbling in digital ethnography also came out as a complete kind of accident. It was... 100% unplanned. Mm -hmm. When I was doing my graduate studies in my research methods classes during my master's and during my PhD, I had not read anything about online research or digital research. It just wasn't a thing that I was trained in, right? This was several years ago, so I'm sure things are changing. But back then, this just wasn't something that we learned about. And so I never even knew that this was possible. So I entered the field not fully aware of how things might be different as, you know, someone who's um, digitally competent and who Mm -hmm. is working with young men who are also on their phones all the time and on social media all the time. So it didn't even cross my mind, which is really interesting. In 2013, when I entered the field as a research assistant, as I mentioned, participants were telling me oftentimes about social media, how social media is dangerous and it's exacerbating neighborhood beefs and it's leading to violence and shootouts in the streets because, you know, people are antagonizing each other and rival neighborhoods and rival gang members are showing up on the block and posting pictures and threatening other people with guns outside their houses, you know, trying to Mm -hmm. call them out to antagonize these street beefs some more. And they were telling me, like, they were worried about this. And they said that, you know, this is going to exacerbate violence across the city amongst rival social housing projects. Just watch. Like, it's going to be a, quote, unquote, hot summer, right? Mm. Which means that their streets are active and not in a good way. I said, okay. So I started kind of hearing a bit more about this. But again, I was a novice kind of researcher at that time. I wasn't doing full-blown ethnography just yet. But then when I re-entered the field in 2014 as part of my own kind of ethnographic practice, what happened was, you know, it was just one random day, nothing unusual standing out. I was with two of my participants and one of them, you know, they were on their phones. This was back in 2013 or 2014. Everybody's on their phones all the time, right? Adding everybody. (laughs) And one of my participants turns to me, he's like, yo, like you got Instagram, right? And at that point, I was just so like... didn't even cross my mind. So I was like, yeah, okay. Like, and you know, as I'm taking out my phone, the part, the other participant with him is also adding me, right. Trying to find my handle at this point. And so now this is something completely unplanned, something I didn't really think too much about. It's almost like, you know, when you, you meet someone and immediately they're like, Oh, let me add you on social media. And you just kind of (laughs) respond without even necessarily Mm -hmm. thinking this through. So this quickly and casually really connected us online. And again, in the moment, I didn't realize kind of how important this might be to my research. And I didn't realize how important this definitely was in their lives, how, how important a role social media was playing in the streets. I had heard about it, but I wasn't really understanding its importance at the time. So this is kind of how it happened. And so I started 
you know, seeing some of their posts, it started popping up on my timeline. And I felt, you know, a little bit weird about it at first. I was like, oh, you know, but nothing, didn't think too much of it. Mm-hmm. And their posts, oftentimes they didn't really elicit my interest too much, right? I just, I had known these men on the streets and their post was like, okay, you know, here they're showing off nice clothes and new shoes and like bottle service and cars and jewelry. Right. And like they're presenting themselves as, you know, gangsters and involved in the street life, trying to pretend to be threatening all of these things. Fine. And I dismissed it again, right? Wasn't really... My eyes weren't open, as open as they should have been at that time. But shortly thereafter, it was actually my participants who attuned me to social media and its role in their lives and that I should be looking at it. Because Mm -hmm. shortly thereafter, one of my participants said, you know, you better show your Edmonton friends our accounts so they know what real Toronto gangsters are like, right? Because in Edmonton, they don't know right? Edmonton is the city I live in now. And so they wanted me to show basically my connections to them and to to use their platforms as evidence of the fact that they really are involved in this life, right? And they really are these shakers and movers in the underground economy in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And so that clicked. When that happened, it clicked. And it was really interesting because not only was I like, hold on, there's something really important here going on. But this is now raising really interesting questions about confidentiality, anonymity, right? Their pages were all open. Some of them started gaining huge uh, fame and notoriety Mm. in Toronto beyond these neighborhoods. So they started gaining uh, followers and popularity and rising in basically Toronto's underground rap scene. So all of a sudden, people from my university and, you know, were coming to know who some of these young men were. Mm. And that's when I started getting also a little bit worried because, you know, most ethnographies are conducted kind of in dark corners, right? Identities are protected. These participants are those who are often hard to find. And all of a sudden my participants were gaining, gaining huge online fame and being very public and open about it. So this kind of changed things up a little bit. Yeah, it's really interesting. So you you said there was sort of a link between some of that um, online posturing and things that were actually, you know, happening on the streets, and yes. maybe, maybe even violence. Could you explain how that worked? Yeah. Like maybe with examples? Yeah, so oftentimes and... Um, this is still happening. I still have my participants online. I'm still connected with them. And I see some of these exchanges, which are increasingly hard to watch. So oftentimes what would happen is either my participant or a, a rival from you know, another social housing block would post some sort of antagonistic image or threat against you know, members of the other gang or the other neighborhood. And Oftentimes, if you don't respond similar to the street code, right, this kind of drops you in the hierarchy of the street and you're more susceptible to be victimized because people think you can't protect yourself or you won't back up your neighborhood or anything like that. And so at this point, you're at greater risk of being harmed if you do nothing. And so the street code necessitates that threats or actual violence must be met with violence or additional threats. And so if someone goes on Instagram or Snapchat or Twitter and posts something antagonistic against you, your group, your block, you need to respond and do the same. But responding, right, kind of Twitter fingers isn't enough in the street world oftentimes. What you need to do is you often need to kind of up the ante. And so for my participants, this would involve, for example, a rival entering the neighborhood, taking a picture outside one of their infamous buildings, right, where everyone knows it's Regent Park, with a gun and tagging my participants and asking, you know, where are you at? Like, I thought you were protecting the block, right? Making them look foolish and making them look like they aren't these real gangsters. So that's something that would then have to lead to violence because now right? The ante is upped. And so how do my participants then respond to their, well, perhaps 
there is now a video posted about this rival being jumped and his chain stolen in real time, which is a very offensive thing on the street, right? So these are kind of videos of victimizations are now broadcast to an even wider audience. And so the stakes are higher. Mm-hmm. And in Toronto's kind of neighborhood street scene, unfortunately, many of these men often then end up falling victim to gun violence, specifically mm-hmm. the men who happen to be doing better for themselves. Like in Regent Park, one of the men was doing quite successfully in the rap scene, was really making a name for himself, including internationally. And he was shot dead a couple of days after he filmed his recent music video in a rival project, right? Mm-hmm. So there's these pressures to perform these ways online, but unfortunately the consequences can be fatal. They often aren't, right? A lot of it doesn't lead to real world violence as you know, Forrest Stewart has claimed, but, but they can. Um, and so that's just yet another layer that marginalized young men in the inner city often have to deal with and navigate. That's that's really sad, um, obviously. Uh, but but also it's it's interesting hearing you talk and you referred to the code of the street, Elijah Anderson earlier, um, and and as you explain the use of social media, I think you're sort of referring to it as well. Um, and what's interesting to me is there's sort of these similar uh, social phenomena that have been explained, you know, for for decades but sort of transforming through their use on social media. Um, I think that's a fair characterization of what you're describing. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and what I really enjoyed to go back to the qualitative sociology article, I mean, what you, you make a, a very um, compelling case that there's, there's a transformation that the, in how we need to do ethnography based on this being a digital age that participants are increasingly um, living their lives on social media, uh, social interactions, like what you describe, but in, in many different cases, right, um, are playing out uh, increasingly on, on virtual spaces. Um, but one thing I wanted to ask, and something that we've talked about a little bit is, uh, you know, you published this article in, in 2020. Um, I, I assume you wrote it before there was uh, a big global pandemic. <laughs> yes. Um, but since you, since you wrote it, uh, there's, there's been a transformation um, sort of in other ways, in, in very practical terms, in the way that we can do ethnography. I mean, in-person research is just much more difficult and for many ethnographers, uh, inaccessible. Um, so I, I think, uh, I, I was wondering if you think that the pandemic has also affected in any way the, the digitalization of ethnography. Oh, hugely so. I, I predict that there's going to be a marked increase in the number, but also the quality of research coming out that's more kind of digital ethnography or netnography or combining, you know, kind of traditional ethnography with a study of the digital realm. I think that there will be huge spikes in terms of graduate students doing this specifically because of course, right, graduate programs and fundings there, they tend to run out. And so grad students are particularly in a rush to get some of their work out. So I see that happening. But I also see a movement of junior and senior scholars exploring online options more in terms of conducting their research. And I see a general move towards this new medium. In some cases, it might kind of replace traditional on the streets fieldwork, I think. But I think in other cases, it might be used um, to benefit in addition to, right, perhaps also to kind of um, buffer on the street research to confirm findings, increase validity, all of these things. And a large part of this is generally, you know, in some universities like mine, the complete inability to conduct human-based research. It's almost been a year and a half. I believe we're still not allowed to in in Canada at this point, just for health, safety, and ethics reasons. I think that's one thing. But I think importantly, too, that this forceful push towards having to do things more digitally is also opening scholars and students' eyes to the possibilities afforded 
by digital data collection, right? Not just out of necessity, but also just, oh, wait, wow, this is cool. This can perhaps take our knowledge further. And this is a new tool in my toolkit that I might be able to use. For example, I believe that the shift towards the more digital space and digital data collection could perhaps result in greater accessibility to certain spaces mm-hmm. like courts right now you can sometimes depending on the platform and on the, the jurisdiction you can zoom into court sessions and observe what is happening in the courtroom more easily than you know you had to if you physically had to attend for example right we also could potentially see and this is one development that i'm particularly hopeful happens an increase in research into riskier settings and when I'm saying riskier settings, I'm not necessarily speaking about, you know, streets and street violence. As a criminologist, of course, that's where my mind goes. But I'm thinking into settings and jurisdictions and countries where perhaps it is particularly dangerous for researchers to be and particularly dangerous for researchers to conduct their specific topics, right? Mm-hmm. So politically or socially volatile kind of situations, and I, I know researchers, researchers have already been doing that, but the ethnographic possibility opens these spaces and these situations up more, right, than just kind of mm-hmm. one-on-one phone interviews. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, Zoom and FaceTime are really opening the realm of possibilities that ethnographers should consider exploring. In fact, more recently, I've been thinking, you know, I'm right now, I'm a four hour flight away from my field site in Toronto with my participants, right? But they could theoretically FaceTime me, right, to the street corner, and we could be on FaceTime for several hours. And I could experience, not fully so, but largely so, right, that their day to day lives and their conversations, and it can be an interactive back and forth. So I haven't seen this done yet. I'm curious to see if if a researcher kind of undertakes this, but I think that that's a huge opportunity that has yet to be explored in that way. I also think there might be huge benefits in terms of perhaps making research more um, cost-effective, specifically for graduate students and graduate students who perhaps want to study countries or settings that are further away or otherwise more costly from where they're located. And so in this case, I think it could potentially make things more equitable. I think it could also potentially expedite or increase the amount of research. So under normal circumstances, if I'm not doing kind of online ethnography, right, being a four-hour plane ride away from my field site, I'm technically checked out. Right? I can't really conduct ethnographic type work. I can do maybe phone interviews, but that's it. But this way, I can conduct potentially field work while I'm across the country, right? While I'm in the middle of the semester, even though I have to be here teaching classes, you know, several times a week, I can still log on and check in with my participants. So I think that there's huge possibilities here. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, the the digital divide is all too real. And I'm sure that a lot of um, people who are doing fieldwork in certain contexts in, in, say, the global south will find it uh, uh, virtually impossible to to do uh, to do some of this precisely because your interlocutors might not have access um, to to high speed internet or even smartphones for that matter. So I think but yeah, I think largely um, I, I I hear you saying something about reimagining um, uh, what ethnography even means. And I think that's really interesting, um, mostly because there's been just so much of an emphasis on immersive ethnography as being the only legitimate way mm-hmm. of doing stuff, right? Like, And uh, there was a recent manifesto on a cultural anthropology blog called a manifesto for patchwork ethnography. So just thinking about the different various sources that we may be drawing ethnographic Mm-hmm. Um, information from like using a qualitative sensibility and um, yeah so uh, and like how that uh, then uh, reveals how able-bodied and masculine certain forms of uh, ethnographies uh, that have been um, you know romanticized as the only right way to do yes. things have, have been over time right and I do think that this has been a moment for all of us to kind of pause and reevaluate what um, uh, you know that this rut that we were sort of stuck in and people like you have been doing this work um 
on digital in digital spaces for a long time now but i think yeah you're so right it's it's become so much more the centerpiece of conversations around uh, ethnographic methods but yeah i mean i feel i feel a bit ambivalent sometimes with this mostly because i also realize that uh, many of my friends who were working in um on projects in rural india have virtually uh, a new way of uh, doing uh, the kind of so even in, even in digital methods i do think that there's a there's a wide um, divide between what it means when you're doing ethnography in northern america or like other developed contexts and what it means when you're doing um ethnographic work elsewhere but i do think that there's so many promises promising um avenues online certainly um at at one's fingertips but yeah it's it's so mm-hmm. it's so great to hear you talk about also cost effectiveness for grad students because that's not something that people talk about very often <laughs> and you know, it's like a real it's like an actual like a real constraint of yeah. how much money you can spend doing this uh doing long term immersive field work in like a in like a different country um yeah the, just the amount of financial uh, drain that 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 has been at least for me when I was doing ethnography um but yeah like just to go back to the nitty gritties and technicalities of um digital ethnography in your qualitative sociology piece you differentiate between what you call the glass window and the one way mirror approach to digital ethnography can you tell us a little bit about these two approaches and what is the distinction between them Yeah, of course. Um so my piece with Robbie Rocks, we kind of outline these different approaches and we came to them based on in our own conversation. So he's an ethnographer conducting gang research in the Netherlands with uh Crips members. And so we talked about our fieldwork experiences and social media and we realized that we kind of went about it quite differently. and we realize that there's two different ways i imagine there's more but in this paper we outline two ways of kind of going about this so the first way is what we refer to as the one way mirror approach and this is basically exactly what it sounds like right so this is essentially a one way study of participants so the researcher is monitoring their social media content their accounts, their posts and the researcher can quote unquote see, right, what participants are producing, what presentations mm-hmm. of self they are sharing online. But in this case the participant doesn't know they are being observed, right? And in addition the participant cannot reciprocate because they don't know that this is happening. So they cannot kind of do the same and follow and observe the researcher. So this if we're looking at kind of gold's standard research roles, right, would obviously be on the more observant side of the continuum where you are just kind of watching. Mm-hmm. And this is what Rocks utilized um during the early days of his incorporation of the real street or the virtual street and the physical street. Now what's interesting here this can be referred to as many different ways right cyber stealth or creeping these mm. kinds of things which <laughs> I'm sure we were all guilty of at least in some point in our lives right, right? with right, our right. friends and family so that's yeah. the one kind of way to do it and that has several benefits but also several limitations the second way of going about this type of ethnography is the glass window approach and so this falls more on the kind of participant side of the research role spectrum. So the glass window approach again, right, as you might imagine a glass window is two-way visibility. And this is kind of the approach that I took where I added my participants to my social media account and vice versa. So I was able to see the content they produced and they were conversely able to see what I was sharing on my accounts. Now this avenue provides its own opportunities but is also i would argue far riskier and far more mm-hmm. difficult to navigate for ethnographers generally this approach robbie and i argue pr- produces greater transparency mm-hmm. and makes the relationship a bit more equal although of course right it's never equitable in terms of positions and power and all of those things but it allows us access to our participants presentations 24/7 24/7 but it also allows our participants to evaluate our lives and our presentations back right? right so it's pros and cons 
But one of the best kind of benefits of this, I would argue, is that it allows us to maintain and potentially build or unfortunately sometimes lose rapport while you're not in the field. So it kind of allows you to bring the field with you wherever you are. So that's kind of the differences between the approaches. One one thing that I absolutely loved in in the way that you wrote about it and, and in the sort of the, the strategy that you took towards using the glass window approach um, is that, and, and you said this in the qualitative sociology piece, you have two different social media accounts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you have a social media account for your professional work. I do. Right? But that's actually for academic context. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and your personal social media account is actually what you, what you shared with uh, research participants. Yes. <laughs> um, so I don't know how much of that was an intentional choice. I mean, you, you told the story about uh, sort of sharing your Instagram, that that just happened. Yes. Uh, with participants. Um, but I was wondering, you know, what, what's your experience with that? Did you find yourself sort of changing uh, how you posted on social media because you knew that research participants were were able to see things? Um, were there ever any issues that came about as a result of this? Um, and I guess why why make that decision? Yeah, no, that's, that's totally fair. This is always um, a controversial question, but it's always probably one of the funniest, so I appreciate you asking it. So in my case, it happened, right, almost as an accident. I really wasn't thinking when it just happened because, you know, it just said, you know, yo, you got Instagram. It's like, yeah, okay, here's my handle. And my Instagram is like my private friends and family account. I keep that usually locked down. Now, what's interesting is I do have the professional account and that I keep fairly clean and fairly mundane and generally boring, right? That's a very standard processing. But when I kind of was realizing that my content that I was sharing with my participants was basically a window to my life. At that point, I was in my early 20s, similar to many other young people. I was sharing many, many facets of my life on my private social media account. When I realized that this information, you know, where I lived, who my family members were, who my partner was at that time, all of these things were making it to my participants' lives, I did think about whether that was necessarily the best idea. And I did struggle with aspects of that not from a privacy or safety perspective on my end, though I realize some ethnographers might consider that, but importantly from protecting my participants' identities in that way. Because now, you know, my friends and family who had me online could see my interactions with this group of individuals that they didn't know and interactions and posts perhaps that were quite different than interactions and posts that occurred uh, previous to. So there was some possibility there about the two worlds colliding a little bit. And that just had me consider questions like research-based questions, right? REB stuff in, in terms of that way. <laughs> what it also did, believe it or not, was it created problems because as people were asking about this and scholars and academics were learning, I had these two accounts. <laughs> Some of my colleagues from the academy were quite upset that they were on the professional account only. <laughs> and so I had a lot of questions about that. And I had to be very careful about filtering in and out in terms of those accounts. Like to this day, it's pretty separated um, mm -hmm. in that sense. It became, there were some really interesting moments with this. For example, you know, context collapse definitely occurred. So I was also you know, liking and commenting on some of my participants' posts. And at that time, the platform allowed my followers or my other friends to see what I was doing. And so certain posts or certain comments that I was engaging with my participants in a particular way were now bleeding into my other private contacts. And so I did have some questions from some of my family members <laughs> about some of my digital interactions with my participants. Mm -hmm. um, What's interesting is that this also came up as an issue at a conference where, you know, a senior scholar found it interesting that, you know, if my participants posted a music video, I felt that I was expected to like it and to comment, you mm. know, the fiery emojis below it. 
And so mm-hmm. the senior scholar took issue with me supporting their rap songs, whatever, which is fine. <laughs> right. So it becomes this. And so I know that if this was, if my accounts were blended, it would cause additional problems because some of my academic contacts would not be able to understand, you know, that these are research-based interactions anyways, in terms of that way. That's one thing. In terms of conflating things, another thing that happened (laughs) is that some of my participants took likings to a few of my friends on my social media and started trying to add them. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so that that became a bit interesting conversations in the field um, in terms of that way. One particularly risky thing that happened, and I'm glad I caught it, I believe in time, but this could have been a problem. One of my personal friends who was on my social media account ended up joining the Toronto Police Service um, as a civilian member, right? Not a police officer, but based on their account, it appeared as if this person was working quite high up in the organization, and they were, which is correct. And I was interacting with this person. This person was commenting a lot of my posts, this person's page was open. (laughs) And so at this time, there was quite serious neighborhood beefs and violence happening. My participants were extra paranoid. Mm -hmm. And so thankfully, I caught on pretty quickly that, hey, this might look like something that it's not, perhaps. And so I had to unfortunately remove this person from my social media. I could have had the conversation with my participants, but it was just too messy. You know, I didn't want to appear too close to police. And so I made that decision to just kind of purge that. Uh And then, so this kind of speaks back to your original question. Sorry for my tangent here. You know, did I modify what I posted and shared given my participants had access? I did. I I definitely did. There was definitely some catering and some tailoring of certain posts, you know, sharing specific music videos that, you know, they might enjoy, um, framing of specific news events, including unfortunately homicides, knowing that they would see it, um, including unfortunately far too many rest in peace posts, right? Recognizing that I also kind of had to maintain who I was in the field online. And so this wasn't this wasn't a departure from who I was. It's just perhaps some of those posts I wouldn't have necessarily shared to try and protect my, my image or my presentation from other personal friends, if that kind of makes sense. So there was a lot of context collapse in that situation. Yeah, no, that's, uh, this is all really interesting. I mean, I think many of uh, us who even don't even like actively do digital ethnography necessarily have to negotiate this line of like our digital selves right yes. like when your informants kind of add you on Facebook and like or follow you on Twitter like what are you going to do in terms of what you say and how they might be receiving it yeah um, this is all really fascinating um, so yeah just to stay on this um, on this in like in this vein uh, you raised some really interesting questions about informed consent on digital media. Mm -hmm. So what are the ethics um, of doing digital ethnography and what advice can you give our listeners, um, students or, or faculty who are starting out with digital ethnography now um, on like, what are the big important ethical issues to keep in mind by doing digital ethnography and uh, yeah, your thoughts on this? Yeah. So (laughs) huge kind of ethical issues and consent is a big one. Um, but consent is also a funny one, as, as Robbie and I kind of talk about in the paper. I think that many individuals would approach this issue as, you know, requiring separate obvious consent for the physical street and for the digital street, mm-hmm. right? And that might make sense for sure if you're perhaps starting on the digital street, Right. Does it make as much sense after you have years and years of kind of consent and relationship and rapport in the real street and if the consent is participant sought? So we separate consent based on participant sought versus researcher sought, right? Mm -hmm. So in my case, what we argue is that that digital relationship, right, the Instagram and the Facebook and the Twitter connection was participant sought because most of my participants ended up asking me and finding me and adding me, initiating that connection. That's on the one end. 
versus researchers sought, right, which is the handful of participants that I locate online or what, you know, Robbie Rocks had to do with his participants, right? He had to go and send them friend requests and hope that they would confirm. So that's kind of like where, who initiates that connection? That's the first step. Then the second step is, are our participants aware and do they consent to their digital artifacts and their digital presentations, right? Their posts, their creations online to be part of your study. And this is where it's interesting because, you know, what is the expectation of privacy here? And does it differ if their accounts are public or if they're private, right? Some of my participants, they have, you know, 76 followers. Their accounts are private. They are very careful with what they post. Fine. Some of my other participants have 250,000 followers from all across the world, and they are very liberal with what they post, knowing full well that, you know, police are probably monitoring their accounts as well. So that's a very kind of interesting question in terms of that. And even if this relationship is initiated by your participants, so your participants add you right? That doesn't necessarily mean that they're aware that you could be perhaps gathering information from their online uh, presentations, right? So I do think that conversation needs to occur and make it quite clear and then let participants opt in or out of that Mm -hmm. because that's kind of informed consent in this realm. That's how I see it. So that's one huge ethical issue. Each research ethics board is different, right? As I'm increasingly Mm -hmm. learning between universities across countries, right? Some nations don't have research ethics boards, nothing like that. So whether your research ethics boards require specific, unique, separate consent will vary. And I'm not sure how research ethics boards are dealing with that. I would love to see kind of pieces on that, specifically when it comes to populations who are engaging in riskier activities, such as crime, right? The the ante is usually upped when it comes to presentations like that. Uh So that's another huge ethical issue there. One thing that I also want to point out is the biggest concerns is how, if and how we share our participants kind of digital artifacts in our publications, in our presentations. So if one of my participants, um, made a tweet or had a particularly interesting Instagram post that I thought was sociologically relevant and I want to share with others for research purposes, can I go ahead and do that? And what steps should I take to ensure that they remain confidential and anonymous and that they might not face any negative repercussions of that, right? Mm -hmm. How can we go the extra mile to make sure that these artifacts are essentially, right, to use the term, ungoogleable? To make sure that, you know, if you search hard enough, you still couldn't identify the participant that I refer to in my research article, right? Mm -hmm. So these are kind of some questions uh, going forward. But importantly, and I hope ethnographers think about this more, I think the ethical issues of kind of ethnography and digital ethnography haven't fully been unmasked. That's because social media platforms are changing at the speed of light, capabilities and things are changing so quickly. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes researchers just can't necessarily keep up with the technological developments and they can pose huge risks and problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, right now on Instagram Live, right? Some of you might be familiar if you use Instagram, two or three parties can join a conversation in real time, which can be viewed by hundreds of thousands or millions of people. That's great. But what happens when your participants or if your participants have many followers or engage in online beefs and invite you to join the live, right? That's kind of a big issue there. Other online platforms have switched and have made it possible for people to identify your location Sometimes, you know, most of us don't read the fine print. And so there's different apps in Snapchat and in other apps where your location is shared in real time. That can become a huge risk depending on the type of research we do, right? And this goes above and beyond street risks. This can be government Mm -hmm. risks, risks from police, these kinds of things. So Mm -hmm. the huge ethical implications of this, I think, are just evolving as platforms evolve. 
I just think this is so valuable, Marta, because um, I, speaking for myself, I'm, I mean, I received no training in in digital ethnography and, you know, in my own research, wasn't necessarily planning on doing digital ethnography, but similar to you, realized that it was just such an, an important part of uh, the social life of this rural village in, in Colombia that I study. Um, and as you speak, you know, I'm, I'm really questioning and, uh, and sort of thinking about how to, how to deal with these issues of consent and anonymization and, and all kinds of things. Um, so thank you. Uh, I think that's, that's a really important reason to have this conversation and, and, you know, ex- extend the conversation, um, maybe even to methods training. Yeah, I think that that definitely needs to happen. You know, similar to you, Robbie and I write about having no idea, right, about this whole area that this is even possible, how it exists and how to go about it. And so we really had to go, had to adopt this learn as you go method. And as you know, given the research risks, particularly for some populations and particularly for some research projects, that is not ever what we would encourage ethnographers to do, right? The learn-as-you-go method can produce notable harms to our participants. And our ethics and our obligations require us to try to mitigate that as much as possible. And so I really hope that ethnographers across the spectrum, right, start having these conversations more openly because a lot of this too, and I've realized in some of my conversations with other scholars doing this type of work, is that it's often laden in secrecy because none of us kind of know what we're doing. And so it's like, shh, what did you do there? Was it open? Was it a private account? Was it a fake account? But I think that the more open we are and the more, the more honest we are with our encounters, the more we can improve the field and the greater guidance we can give junior scholars and students. And I also want to emphasize, right, there is no normative stance. Ideally, we would prescribe, you know, these recommendations and this kind of best practices and how to, but given how diverse field sites are and our interactions and, you know, given the intersectional identities and positionalities we occupy, these conversations are so complicated. And so what works for me with, you know, my field site and who I am as a person and my identity might be quite different, for example, for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think the more we write about this and the more conversations we have, the better off the field will be. And the more we'll be able to kind of reap the benefits of this approach while minimizing the risks. Well, in in that spirit, um, because I think you're absolutely right, uh, would you be willing to share a story of sort of a, a dilemma or even a mistake uh, that you made in in this process of figuring out how to how to navigate digital ethnography? Yeah, for sure. Um, so there's two two situations. One of them is was a bit different, uh, but I think it's important to mention because I think ethnographers need to consider the implications this might occur to them in other field sites as well. So one of the days that I was in the field most recently, my participants were quite riled up about a specific situation, uh, specifically a rival group, an arrival neighborhood causing some problems, right? So that's, that's what I will say. And they had been drinking that day and they had engaged in some recreational drug use and they were just kind of being rowdy and partying. Fine. Well, unbeknownst to me, while I was speaking to one of my participants just off to the side, another participant started recording threatening videos to a rival gang. And the, their goal was that they were threatening to use violence and they were basically posturing with how many people were in the video and they were showing. And when they, scan, when they skimmed the whole area, I was there um, and I stick out, right? I, of course, I'm I'm a woman and I'm white and I quite obviously don't fit into that general scene. And so in that case, now I am featured in a threatening video and I don't know where that social media post is going to go, right? Plus mm-hmm. I have a digital footprint of my own, right? Some of which is public and open, like my professional one and then my private one as well. And so that caused an interesting situation and I didn't have much guidance because I hadn't read about anything of that happening 
and my mentors, you know, weren't really sure about how these digital interactions go. And so I had to work really hard to try and limit the extent to which that video would be sent out. Because mm-hmm. even if my participants, you know, didn't mean the threats or anything like that, just that image and those those words would be enough potentially to incite violence. And so there I was potentially implicated in greater risk than, you know, normally just hanging out on the block. So that's one particular instance that was a problem that I had to navigate. Another instance was I briefly kind of hinted at it, but one of my participants was on Instagram Live, which has really complicated. It's been beneficial for, you know, netnography, but it's been it's complicated things potentially a little bit. So basically, it was late at night. This participant was on Instagram Live and they were popping off and, you know, posturing and fronting and all of the things that they were doing. And that's fine. And I was viewing this. And at the point I was viewing it, it was like 3 a.m. So there was only like, I don't know, seven people viewing this as well because I could see the viewers. Mm -hmm. And my participant saw that I was one of them and (laughs) referred to me by name and asked me to come on. And so in this case, what's interesting, right, we've spent a lot of time talking about ethnographers, unfortunately, or potentially unmasking participants through social media content, sometimes the arrow can go the other way, where a participant might, in front of other people, unmask kind of the ethnographer, which is totally fine, except for if the participant is, at, in that time, engaging in some activities that I might not want to have to um, navigate publicly, Right. So what do you do? Do you join the live or do you be kind of offensive and log off? And if I join the live, right, you have to anticipate what might happen, right? Mm -hmm. Is my participant going to encourage me to perhaps also speak negatively about this rival group that he's going off about? Like Mm -hmm. the huge implications of that. Um, Do I join the live and try to talk my participant down from, you know, threatening this group? Or do I not? Like, what would that do for our research relationship? What would that do for his public image on social media? Is someone else recording this live? There's just so much unknown in digital interactions that are captured forever and broadcast to a vast audience, right? Context collapse. Is a police officer watching my participants' Instagram live? And am I now going to have more problems with the police, right? Like, Mm -hmm. so much kind of happening in that way. So lots to kind of unpack there. Um, yeah, thank you. That was, um, that was like wonderfully put. Uh, we've taken up a lot of your time today and, you know, it's been such a great conversation. But before we let you go, um, we'd love to know what you're working on now and what we can expect to read by you in the, in the near future. Yes, thank you so much. Uh, so my recent work kind of involves examining experiences of police misconduct and police mm-hmm. violence in Toronto's inner city. So um, specifically, we've been looking at how residents in the inner city experience police raids. Mm-hmm. And again, these are highly marginalized folks, many of whom are racialized, everything like that. And what we're uncovering is that folks are reporting many instances of what they perceive as complete abuses of police power, including mm-hmm. planting evidence Uh, stealing items, like seizing things and not documenting them, unnecessary violence, gendered harassment, racism, all of these things. So that's one subset of my work. Uh, And then another subset I've moved in a little bit differently is examining how people who use drugs, many of whom are also homeless in this context, experience and navigate supervised injection sites. Mm-hmm. In terms of, is it easy to access? Are there any barriers? How do you navigate police and security guards and other neighborhood residents on your way towards accessing, you know, this critical harm reduction service? Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit kind of plugged into what I was doing before, but quite a bit different as well. Yeah, thank you. That sounds really interesting. And I'm sure um, a wonderful stuff is going to come out of that research and uh, can't wait to read, read uh, what comes out of it. Uh, all the best with it um, as you're moving forward. But thanks again, uh, Marta, for taking time out to speak with us today. We really enjoyed this conversation and there are so many provocations that I'm sure a lot of 
researchers navigating this uh, this tricky time will will benefit from. Thank you so much for having me. It was quite interesting to revisit these topics, and I hope again this ignites greater scholarly debate about best practices and you know other possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Marta. We we are really appreciative that you sort of started this conversation um, with your writing and and have continued it here with us. And uh, for our listeners, I would really recommend uh, the work that that Marta has done talking about. Um, the use of digital ethnography. And we'll be um, dropping links to uh, some of Marta's articles on this in the in the blog post on our website and on the New Books Network website. Uh, so please do feel free to peruse these materials. Thanks, Marta, again. Have a, have a wonderful day ahead. And yeah, good luck with everything. Thanks so much. Likewise, and take care.